You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello, you are listening to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I am your host, Louis Kornfeld, and my guest today is the great Keisha Zoller. Thanks for being here, Keisha. Thank you. Thank you for saying my name right. I, well... I have, it's, to, it's okay. I have to preface by saying right before the conversation started, I had to ask because I've been calling you Zoller for <laughs> a long time. <laughs> and I, I am very sorry. It's it's okay. And when I was younger, I got called Zool a mm-hmm. lot, uh, contextualizing that. Um, the era of Ghostbusters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Ghostbusters in- influenced my childhood, you know. Yeah. Like too many other children born in the 80s. <sighs> Yeah, we uh, we come from a nostalgic baseline. There's a lot of nostalgia for our the crap that we grew up absorbing. Oh yeah, like people thought it was funny to call me Moesha. Mm-hmm. My name's not Moesha. <laughs> I I was like similar sounds. Are we just playing that game? Uh-huh. And then one of my favorite was when I was a little little kid. People would be like Quiche. Like the food. It's a good, very good. <laughs> what, which tells you uh, uh, the economics surrounding the students I was around. Yeah. Because we're like in third grade. They're having quiche. Yeah. That's ha- not bad circumstances. Yeah. Uh, and the, and I was like, but my name's not quiche. It's quiche. And they'd be like, yeah, it's like quiche with an A. Yeah. Which, I mean, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. I guess. Do you find... Uh, um, when you're like hanging out with people who haven't spent as much time around comedy and comedians as, as we have yourself surprised how many people have a sense of humor that sort of stays at the level of like one word sounds like another word. I love it. Oh, and, uh, they do a voice they think is funny, Uh but isn't funny. Yeah. Or they're just like insulting to people. Yes. Those feel like the three, like overall arching, like the overarching types of like bad real world comedy I see. Yeah. Well, I think there's a third type too, which is the person who their, their attitude is letting you know that they're saying something that they believe is very funny right now, <laughs> but you can't detect a trace in what they're saying of what you're supposed to be laughing at. And not that it's mean spirited. It's just like, uh, what well, is the, time what's the to joke sit here? down, Jim. Yeah. I'm like, what, what is My, that? What, but I'm okay. I'm going to sit. Yeah. Yeah, that other type, the the hostile type, is an interesting one because it leads me to believe that many people's sense of humor kind of stays at a like fourth or fifth grade bully level and like doesn't do a lot of maturing throughout their life. I really think it does. And I've been thinking about that. I think we comedians uh, can do better by modeling better behavior of like, hey, wait, maybe we're not jerks. Yeah they'll realize that like comedians don't want people to keep being bu- most comedians. Yeah. Can't say all cause I don't speak for everybody, but a lot of comedians I encounter, they're like, no, no, no. I, I want the world better. Not, not worse. Do you, do you mean, do you mean in, in the kind of humor that we create or do you mean in our bearing as individuals in the world? Or do you mean? Yes. Both? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes to both. Yeah. Uh, mainly because I, I think it's, one thing to be apathetic or cold to someone that's very different than it is to be like mean. Mm-hmm. Like I can be curt cause maybe I haven't had enough coffee today mm-hmm. <laughs> or I can be cold, but it's very, it takes a lot to be mean. Yeah. It's easier to like do nothing. I agree. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I'd rather be like, uh, I, I actually had one, former student say to me, she was like, I was so afraid of you. Like sometimes you just look so focused as you're walking. I was like, yeah, I'm walking. I can't put more energy into it. Yeah. I have a limited supply of energy in a given day. I'm not going to overexert myself walking. (laughs) I was like, I'm, it's not like, don't come up to me. It's just like, this is what I am. This is my today. Yeah. Maybe tomorrow I'll skip down the hallway, but today I'm focused. I get a, a similar, a similar thing from people sometimes too, but, but I do actually look pissed off most of the time and I'm not, I just kind of, 
You have an intense face. Uh, yeah, I think that's what it is. And and similarly, I'm very um, uh, precious about the amount of energy that I'm giving at any given time. And when I'm teaching, I, I want to give my full attention. So that means when I'm not teaching, I'm I'm down to like 25 percent. I'm I'm very I'm very introverted. I I get that. Uh, I I think I can be that way as well. That like if I'm engaged, I want to give. If I'm not, I'm anastasious. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Just conserving low battery. That's how I feel too. It's not that I don't like you. It's in the most polite, respectful way. I would like to be left alone now, please. <laughs> I, I'll happily coexist with you in this space. We can breathe the same air together, no problem. But please don't engage me on anything. I need, I need my my brain power to kind of charge up before I, I'm good to anybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I I think it's the thing when I tell people I I work in comedy, they're always like, "Oh, that means you're on twenty four seven. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. That's exhausting. Yeah. Uh, there's union laws around working around the clock. Like you can't, like you can't do that in any job. Yeah. I mean, otherwise that's like slave labor. So why would you expect me? And I know uh, like being able to perform on command, that's not quite what I'm talking about. It's just like after a while you're like, man, I've had an exhausting day. I, uh, I, I go to a yoga studio in Queens and um, stop bragging. Okay. Sorry. Um, uh, shortly before I have my quiche for lunch, I go to a yoga studio. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I was there for like a year before the, the, the woman who normally works behind the counter asked what I do for a living. And I said, I, I do, I don't know why, but I'm always like a little embarrassed when I say like, I do improv comedy. And she said, I never would have guessed it. I was like, why? What? You don't act like it. And it was like an interesting insight that like, People expect you're going to act like it. They expect that they're going to smell it on you, meaning that you walk around in like loud shirts uh, uh, with like a wacky energy and you're picking everything up like props and doing bits and shit like that. There's an energy that they expect for you to kind of play the role of always being the, I, the funny person in the I room. I feel like some people expect Jim Carrey all the time yeah. to show up. Yeah, yeah. You're like, that's comedians. Jim Carrey all the time. Yeah. When uh, some of my favorite moments are comedians off stage because it's like, no, like we might be funny, but it's not the same kind of funny or funny type energy. Yes. I, the best comedians I know of have an ability to know when to be funny or to say the really incisive thing or do the really incisive thing. And also a great ability to know when to just not talk or do anything and stay out of it. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because I think a lot these days about the, to your point of, of, about kind of teaching people to, to be better. Um, I, I think about the way that we're kind of in an era right now where comedians seem to be the ones who are frequently rising to, to exhibit some kind of dignity. Isn't that fascinating yeah. that like the moral standard of, comedians is back on the rise. I mean, societies have always like had a comedian role and the comedian role has always been very important because they've helped check power. Right. And now that like power is out of control right now, it's like, Oh, we're important again. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it it's a very good time and a very bad time to be a, someone who practices comedy, but there is something about that sense of, of conscience in that sense of like feeling uh, 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 you have to be the bad conscience of everybody now. And, and, and I think that this, this part of it is a good thing. Y you have to carry yourself with dignity. Yes. You can't be the fool. You can't be the clown. I mean, you can, you can do whatever the fuck you want, but there's, all, there's something to be had by carrying yourself well and, yes. and being smart and dignified and having integrity and also being sharp and funny and critical and all those yeah. things. Well, and I think it's very interesting because people talk about the clown and the fool. I think these are like all these comedy tools are very useful when used intentionally. Mm -hmm. I think it's when people are lazy. Yeah. That's when any kind of comedy can get really bad. Yeah. And we all know like, oh, 
lazy comedy versus like, wow, sharp pinpointing comedy. That might be super goofy. But that I mean, that's what we should all be striving towards, at least in my mind. Um, there was an article um, on AV Club yesterday about uh, South Park and its contribution to the alt-right culture. And it was a pretty interesting article. I, I thought it was insightful and it made the case that a whole generation of people have grown up raised on South Park and... Um, whether or not it's the intention of the creators of that show, one of the lessons that has been absorbed by some people has been uh, um, laughing at people whose experiences you don't share or understand or bother to understand. And that the show has kind of tacitly given a kind of permission to make that okay. Maybe the first generation of people watching it um, didn't see that as permission. They were laughing at the kind of transgressiveness of something that was so idiotic and lowbrow, but a generation of people who are raised with that kind of permissiveness now have this sort of like unspoken thing where like, that's okay. And it feeds into this predominantly young, angry, stupid, alt-right, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it was an interesting article and it got me thinking about um, your responsibilities as a comedian and your responsibilities as a creator. I'm curious where your head is at on that these days. It It's so interesting to me because I, like, I remember I got in a conversation with a friend who basically is like, he's like, as funny as I think South Park is, it's ultimately nihilistic, which he thinks is dangerous because it means everything means nothing. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of that is everything means nothing, but some things mean something to someone. So it's, it is that push and pull of respect. And in terms of like, like I, I see my personal responsibility as like there's issues and things I'm really passionate about. And I like engaging that as a comedian and not running away from it, but actually running into the fire. Because, mm-hmm. like, from a, a race standpoint, uh, I'm black, if you haven't been able to tell by my voice. <laughs> uh, or, I'm, I'm white, if you haven't been able to tell by my Yeah, I, I, you know, it's very interesting. When I was younger, people would say, but you don't sound black and think, God, enough internet videos have been published Mm -hmm. that I'm like, have that conversation online by yourself. Uh (laughs) Leave a comment. Uh Just not with me. That, that all of, a lot of that, it's very interesting that a lot of the things that I see, I, I like speaking from my experience and I feel like I have a responsibility to own my whole experience with, while trying to get better Versus I think it's a really interesting time right now that like so much of racial politics, gender, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, identity politics, a lot of people just don't know how to talk about it. So they'd rather just ignore it and pretend it's not there. Mm -hmm. And I think now is the time we have to have to have to talk about it. And that like more people need to be comfortable with saying black and knowing when somebody declares their queer identity, what that means for that person and like not be scared and pretend it doesn't exist because the status quo is dangerous. I think the responsible, the responsibility of the comedian is to disrupt Mm -hmm. ultimately uh, disrupt the status quo. And I mean, that's a lot of what comedy is and I, I think it can be a number of things, but I think disrupting the status quo is important because a lot of people operate in a routine way that they don't question the values. Like having been in a wedding and a few weddings of late, it boggles my mind how many people don't even understand the traditions behind what they're doing Mm. but they hold on to them and I was like so if you don't understand what a 
means, then it doesn't mean anything to do it other than you're supposed to. And I think the dumbest reason in the world to do anything is because you're supposed to. But that also turns out to be the overwhelming reason why most people do most anything. Yeah. And I, I think that's why I include myself in that too. I don't mean to say that as in I'm above that. I I include myself. I I know you're perfect. Uh, (laughs) thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I, I think it, I think continuing to disrupt it and making intentional choices I mean, hell, that's what Oprah was ultimately about. Like, love yourself, Mm -hmm. intentional choices, eat, pray, love, whatever it is. It's making intentional choices. We have to do that by disrupting sometimes the routine of our lives, the routine of the messages we're being fed. And I think what I love, the power of comedy, it comedy is an easier way to get in those, in the middle of those messages. Um, I'm forgetting the exact, the exact name of it. Um, friend of mine is a magician and he talks about like, you know how, when people snap their finger and they're able to hypnotize people. Mm -hmm. And he was explaining that part of the reason they are able to do it. I don't know. Maybe you're a hypnotist or Uh, I am not. Maybe somebody listening is a hypnotist and I'd love them to explain this to me further. But one of the things you do is you instruct someone to do a behavior right? And before they do it, you interrupt it with a snap, mm-hmm. right? And our brains go, huh, huh, disruption, which is why we kind of like go limp mm-hmm. because we're so used to like doing a thing, automatic pilot that like when it interrupts, like we like our brains go, no, that's interesting. And, and, and in that disruption now there's a possibility with an interrupted task or an interrupted habit for kind of new new information yeah Yeah. or just even just coming back to the same thing with a new positive energy yeah which for me i think is what i think is super cool about comedy that like just even posing the question for a lot of people disrupts the way they've been thinking. Yeah. Presenting alternative stories that maybe they've never heard disrupts. Like if I'm somebody who's never met a trans person and I hear somebody tell this human story and I end up finding uh, out more about their identity and it's super relatable. And I see myself in that person that disrupts my sense of what a trans person is in a, and hopefully we can start to create more positive things, more positive narratives. I think there's a lot to be had and said around that. Mm-hmm. Like just the ability of like a laugh is a disruption, right? <laughs> like just the energy of disruption. I've also been reading a lot about social movements around the world and how disruption is one of the most common tactics mm-hmm because it makes people stop and think and go, oh yeah, this regime is oppressive. (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. I should do something. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe it makes people feel not so alone. I want to um, talk more about this in a second from a teaching perspective, because I'm really curious Mm. to pick your brain on it. Um, But just as like a quick sidetrack before I forget it. Um, because I, I, I have been, as I'm sure most people listening to this are feeling extremely overwhelmed these days. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, by the relentlessness of uh, just the madness of the world around us. But one thing that ha- has also been in my mind a lot it has been if there's a positive to be gotten out of it, and I think that there is. There is something interesting in as we're watching kind of institutions fall apart before our very eyes and, and, and watching once dignified offices completely lose all sense of dignity. There is something in that disruption and breakdown and corruption that forces you to have to think about the ideas behind certain offices or the ideas behind certain traditions and, and make you realize that certain ideas that perhaps we have been guilty of taking for granted for a long time or, or just assuming their validity now have to pass the muster and, and actually have like a living 
have, have a living connection to us. Hell yeah. Uh, I was thinking about that, especially right after the election. And even now, we were at least a number of people I've encountered, and I'm speaking for myself and numerous people I've talked to about it. I don't feel like I was ever told the negatives of democracy. Right, yeah. I was never told that, oh, ultimately, most democracies fail. Yeah. And they don't last very long, right? That it is, I knew why uh, communism was bad growing up. And I knew why other authoritarian regimes around the world were bad. But I didn't know the good and the bad of democracy. Democracy is imperfect. Any system of governing people is imperfect because human beings are imperfect. Mm-hmm. It's. I find it interesting. We never questioned or disrupt. We were just fed. Democracy is great. You get what you want. Did you get what you want? We, then it's we, fine. We were also never taught to be vigilant for yes the signs of corrupted mm-hmm. democracy because yes. nobody mentioned the shadow side of democracy. Exactly. And and I think I always talk. I compare democracy like a car. Mm-hmm. It can uh, be a great tool, but it can also murder a ton of people mm-hmm. if you're not trained properly on it. And I think that's what's so interesting about the state we're in right now is I feel like people, like, I don't feel like I my education equipped me to be the best citizen I could be. I'm trying to get better and educate myself and try to be better as a citizen, but I don't feel like my education. And I went to quote unquote good schools and they didn't show me the dark. They didn't show me the good and bad, the tool and weapon. Cause I'm very much, I believe anything can be a tool or a weapon. Right. And it's just important to understand how a single thing can be both and have a clear intention behind using it. Do you, I don't, I don't actually don't think there's an answer to this question, but I'll, I'll pose it anyway. It, 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 how much is that because it's just easier to kind of teach the glorified aspect of it and kind of keep everyone feeling comfortable and reassured and looking to a positive horizon status (laughs) quo. How much of it is because to, to teach something in all of its complexity and to look at a rounded view of something and see that it's not as simple as a or b that every tool is also a weapon and vice versa how much of it is is just people choose to i guess it is a status quo thing choose to ignore that complexity because it's easier to ignore and teach the teach the child-friendly version it's easier to ignore and i think it takes a lot of courage to question things on a deep level even to question things you hold sacred i've been doing i've been going down in some of my deep feminist readings and they were talking about like even uh the idea of gender what if that went away someday and we deconstructed gender completely so should we hold on to the symbols of gender so much Mm -hmm. and just the idea that like we should question everything I mean, we can come to conclusions and conversations about where we are now and where we want to go. However, I think I, I think holding things too sacred, so sacred that they can't be questioned, is an easy way to keep the status quo without ever giving pushback. Mm-hmm. Because the status quo needs to keep moving forward. Otherwise, it's going to be checked and it tends to be very violent because it's about control and it can stop evolution like from a societal point of view. So I, th- I think also people crave simplicity, like simplicity is nice. It's also important to understand. I think for each person is like, where do I need simplicity and where should I like understand that complexity will help me and the human race ultimately. There's a very big difference though, between sim- simplicity coming from a place of simplifying issues. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and just erasing from your, from your mind, those things that don't fit versus a kind of entertaining so many perspectives at once that 
a kind of elegance emerges. I don't, I don't know exactly how to explain I, what I'm I talking under, about. I understand like, like the simplicity of like, I, I talk about it uh, as human rights right. that like ultimately it sounds so simple. The idea of human rights, I'm fighting for everyone's rights, even for people I disagree with a whole lot Yes, because they dehumanize me, but yes. I still humanize them. Right. And that's a simple idea with a lot of complexity once yes. you break it down because it's a very hard thing to do because it's much easier to be like, cut off their heads versus being like, well, their humanity is valuable even though I think a lot of their views are dangerous, X, Y, and Z. And cut off their heads is the simple solution to a complex problem. It's just not that. So, so much of the rage in the air these days is tied to looking for simple, immediate solutions to complex problems that we're facing. And and and, and a bad kind of simple solution. Oh, yeah. That, uh, that's the bad simplicity. Yeah, and uh, in a way where these issues, they're treating them as if they're unique, not like they've always been there because they have. Yeah. Like xenophobia, bigotry, not enough food, uh, economic um, oppression, all of these things have been around <laughs> since we've created all of these constructs. They're, they've just been around. But somehow now we think we have this solution but it's the same. All the simple solutions are the some of the most barbaric solutions because it's the earliest solutions. Mm -hmm. And I, I think about it all the time. It's just our lizard brain reacting to fear. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think it's very powerful that we have this beautiful uh, frontal lobe that helps us reason and process. <laughs> but we still like give too much energy to our lizard brain and act in fear and anxiety. And I, I try to, at least with myself, remind myself that like when I, I get angry and like somebody says something to me on Facebook or whatever, that like, why am I so upset? And mm -hmm. not that I have to lash out and hurt them. Cause I think I'm very particular. Like I don't love revenge as a plot. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't like revenge movies. Mm -hmm. Like, I can appreciate them as cinema. So that means you hate John Wick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> John, that, that's Keanu Reeves, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually haven't seen it. Haven't. I'd probably watch it for the action, but I'd inevitably probably hate the storyline. Yeah. Because revenge is one of those things I was like, well, this is ultimately just going to be damaging. Yeah. Because it's only a matter of time before someone exacts revenge on you, or you have to become such a monster that you completely undermine and overturn the possibility of any repercussion. Right. Which is so hard. Yeah. You literally have to create a unthinkable oppression to wipe out a problem. I mean, quote unquote, the final solution still wasn't a final mm -hmm. solution. Meaning because I believe the human spirit and the desire to support other humans is much stronger. Yes. Than our desire for simple violent solutions. Yeah. It, it, I, I agree with that. I, I think, and I think that in the heat of um, anger and in the heat of, of negativity and, and kind of vileness, with that lizard brain really strongly triggered and active, it's easy to neglect the fact that nothing around you is possible without a very fair amount of cooperativeness and uh, 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 being able to entertain the complexity of different relationships. And you don't see that. That just disappears into the background. You just see all the problems that are, are infuriating you. And that a lot is working Yeah, that a lot of society is working together and it's fine. And most of the things that quote unquote, people have a moral problem with don't impact you directly. It, you know, it's interesting. The moral problem that most people have goes back to you. You have that problem simply because the people around you have that problem. It, it I, I passionately feel this way. Mm hmm. Simply because um, 
the people around me passionately feel this way. And it's back to that thing of, of not really critically reasoning your way through much or, or, or taking the simple. And I think part of what's hard is I can understand the desire to just want to make it easy, give in. Yeah. That also, like, if you just open enough history books, you start to realize you're like, oh, that's how the powerful take all the power. Yeah. People get murdered and die. In literally every instance historically. Yeah. Like, I'm grossly oversimplifying history. Uh, however, the simplicity of it still rings true. Yeah. And that's, that. I think that's why I push back because, yeah, the simple answers are tend to be the most violent and oppressive ones. I, I there are three totally distracting thoughts that are coming to my mind with this. I, I guess I'll start with this one. That's one reason why I feel okay. Let me back up for a second. People who uh, are are able to convey a certain simplicity in the way that they can grasp ideas but show a, a large mindedness in the way that they're able to arrive at that simplicity. The obviousness of human rights, for example, right? Uh, there's a certain kind of authority that that person speaks with. I love that word authority, not in the authoritarian sense, but in that sense of someone who is speaking and they clearly know what they are speaking about. And I think that there's a lot of people who um, ape authority. Uh, um, they they speak and they create the impression of authority when they're not entertaining complexities. They're simply going for those obvious, cheap, simple answers. And the mass of people will tend to be worked up emotionally by people with absence of authority. So in a time where leadership has failed and in a time where dignity is sorely lacking and authority is sorely lacking, it's interesting that you sense that rising with comedians to extend that thought. Something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, too, is the kind of gluttony of entertainment. And, and, and we're, getting a lot of, we're getting a lot of stories presented to us that are, I think, in general, widening the playing field of what pop culture is seeing. But I also think that, again, tool and, and weapon, uh, um, stories help us understand things and stories help us come to terms with things and lazy storytelling and lazy entertainment, I think can be very damaging. Like even the, re- I agree. the revenge plot you're talking about, right? There's an excitement and I don't want to shit on John. I actually don't know John Wick that well, but like any, any revenge movie that, you know, gets people like really like riled up, there's an excitement and a thrill to watching it. But what it leaves out is exactly what you're talking about. The kind of like scorched earth, repercussion of revenge and when your stories don't show the complexity of something it's easy for the stories to end up conveying the wrong message and reinforcing this kind of status quo yeah yeah whereas like if hamlet is like the example of like there's a revenge story that ends very badly for every single person yeah no one no one walks out being like we did it yeah everyone walks out worse i never want to go through that experience again which is the point yeah, well, because it's, it's the, it's, and I think it's interesting. It's like, there's a difference between justice and revenge. Yeah, yes. And it's painful that sometimes we may never see justice. Mm-hmm. And then to seek revenge doesn't, won't get us justice. And revenge is a lot of times empty because ultimately in revenge, you're trying to hurt someone else. Mm-hmm forgetting that when you hurt someone else, no one is in a void. They are connected to other people, people who probably love and care for them, who will want revenge themselves because you took away a person which aren't replaceable. You can't just replace your your grandmother, your mother with another replica of that person. Not yet. I mean, my sci-fi dreams maybe, but not yet. And oh, God, are, really seriously, no, that's a nightmare to me. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I have so many complex feelings. I love science fiction. Uh, I want more of it with all that imaginary time I have. Uh, 
but I just, I think ultimately that's why I hate them so much because mm-hmm. I was like, no, when you murder people, they don't come back. Yeah. And then someone like most people have someone in their lives who cares about them enough to be deeply distraught. Mm-hmm. So that deeply distraught person, you better hope doesn't want revenge because if they do, it's just a cycle of pain. Yeah. And it's that idea of ending the cycle of pain that I think is helpful that cause it, it, cause what ultimately is behind a lot of revenge is you deeply hurt me in a way that I struggle every day to let go of. And I need you to know that. Mm. And I want you to feel that. And the problem with the human condition, it's really can't force anything to do anyone to do much unless you do it with violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anne Bogart in, in one of her books talks about this, uh, this idea of uh, she's talking in the context of plays that move an audience versus plays that stop an audience. I think that's Ooh. a really interesting way to think about it. And, and in her, it actually goes back to what you were saying about interruption. Uh, um, the stopping of an audience instead of moving them emotionally and carrying them forward with the story, it interrupts the flow where they have to stop and kind of have a private experience of, of, of this particular work. And I really like that idea a lot. And I find that a lot of the more powerful artistic works I've, I've enjoyed have that kind of quality to it where it leaves a lingering taste in your mouth and it leaves this kind of, uh, echo in you that there is a feeling that this beautiful story or, or whatever has left you with this feeling that things are more complicated than they seem on the surface. Yeah. It, it's so interesting because I think everybody's story, every, I think people have such complexity in them as people, which is why I respect people a lot. And I think it's very easy to want to simplify and just like give people what they want and not let them have that. Like, I mean, it's why, uh, one of my favorite movies, a lot of people are like, what, uh, is Requiem for a dream. Mm. And I love it because I watch it and it kicks me in the face. Mm. It definitely does do that. Uh, and it kicks me in the face because I'm distraught. Because unlike nor like a lot of other storytelling, uh, the characters don't change, mm-hmm. and it feels real in that way because characters don't change; they get worse. Mm-hmm. They have to live in the choices they made, and some feel happy about it, even though they're bad, mm-hmm. and some are trapped by it, and some are forever mutilated and changed. So I think, so I, I'm really moved by when art shows the reality mm-hmm. sometimes that like, no, he doesn't get the girl. It's worse. Right. When I like seeing, and I like, I like art that forces me to stop. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. You say that I like feeling that sense of like, Oh, I just wasn't like, I wasn't given a piece of candy. Cause if I want that, I go home and watch HGTV. Mm-hmm. I love HGTV. A lot of good but, stuff. Tiny houses. Um, I need my tiny houses, tiny <laughs> house paradise. What? Uh, no, no one's ever happy with their tiny house. I, I love it. You see so many miserable couples on, on tiny houses. And I digress. Uh, I still, I want a tiny second home. But I digress. Give me a tiny second home. If anyone's a tiny home builder, contact me. <laughs> there, there may be a patron listening to the uh, podcast. Uh, listen, if they want to help me with my tiny home, I will put that out there in the world. I There's a few different places I want my tiny home, but I want one real bad as a second home. Sure, of course. I also live in New York, so I'm like tiny. Yeah. Okay. What else you got? I was like, as long as it, I was like, is it on land? Yeah. Great. I get to look at trees. Yeah. Looking at trees versus being in concrete. I don't need much inside space. I need outside. But I'm with you. Yeah. I, 
A friend of mine, I love how she says it. She's like, sometimes I just need to go stare at a tree. And, and it has a, a pronounced effect on you when you stare at trees. Not to sound like a hippie, but um, it does have a huge effect. It, you know, human beings, I feel, are like helium balloons that are getting further and further away from from the string that's connecting us to the ground. There's mm-hmm. something about the human brain that in its ability to to kind of step above everything and reason its way through is just like detaching itself from the world and seeing itself as being somehow independent of everything around it. And it's, it creates a really alienating inhuman anti-nature anti-person feeling. It, that, that disconnect that we are part of, we are the same that ultimately the reason it's so simple. It's like, no, 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 we're, we're all kind of the same. Right. And a lot of the times it's like, well, we're all kind of the same. I value my life. I value the lives of the people I'm around. Huh? Why can't I translate that to somebody else who might be different? Mm -hmm. We may not share the same opinions about how to live our everyday life, but like, why don't we try to coexist, coexist? But apparently that's, There is a lot of pushback, and I think it's just we disconnect from nature. I have a theory about that. It's not not my theory. Uh, um, It's probably a good one anyway. I've I've co-opted this theory, but it, it, and and I think that there's a a lingering kind of monotheism lurking behind everything that is an attempt to simplify certain things about the world that we're now finding out are vastly untrue. And what I mean by that is... In just day-to-day relations with people, you're invariably going to kind of hate someone for a while. And I think you have to also respect that side of it, too. Yes. There has to be an acknowledgement, and not a, not a fisticuffs acknowledgement, but you have to kind of be comfortable with yourself knowing, like, I hate you. And negative emotions. There's and- negative emotions. They're there. You know, you have to honor it. I think you can exist in a way that's like, I respect your humanity, mm-hmm. but fuck you. Yes, I respect your humanity. Fuck off. Yeah. And and I agree totally. And I think that there's a world of difference between that and and a worldview which says, I'm a bad person for feeling that. I shouldn't feel that. I'll push it away. And the more you- Push it down, down, Push it down. Yep. And then I just have this lingering hatred of everybody. Or or anger erupts at the most bizarre times and places, or I need to vent it it, it, as soon as, uh, as soon as the, 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 the right person who's not a real authority on something comes along and, and, and tickles that part of me. It all comes pouring out like a pus. Versus I, I think people don't want to process their emotions instead of like confronting your mother who might be toxic to you. You yell at somebody, you take that energy and you yell at someone who doesn't share the same value. Yeah. Remembering that it's like, so what? They don't share the same value. They don't have to. Yeah. We're not all mere images of each other. In fact, that's what makes being alive super fun and interesting. Also horrifying and dangerous. We're not all the same. I think that's the hardest part. I think a lot of people realize when they get in like a relationship is no matter how similar you are, you are not the same person. And our nature is like, no, 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 be just like me. No, yeah. we'll never be. Yeah. And you have to either come to terms with loving that or like realize that, oh, maybe I'll, I'll maybe I'm just not meant to be with anybody. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I think there is that disconnect between like feeling how you feel in the moment. I think like that's what is like to get uh, spiritual about it. I think that's why I can't imagine my life without improv in a way, because Mm -hmm. improv is one of the things that has consistently brought me back in the moment. In addition to other practices like meditation and whatnot. But I love the fact that part of my job and part of what I do is bringing people into the moment. Mm -hmm. And acknowledging what is versus trying to go off and do their own agenda. Mm -hmm. And I think that level of presence is what I love about performing. 
that's what I feel when I'm really alive and I'm at the computer typing is just a level of presence. And like the term gets used a lot in business right now, but flow, Mm -hmm. I, I still think it's appropriate that like, I think more people can be in flow and sometimes being in flow means flowing with your anger, Mm -hmm. flowing with your sadness. I also think people, it's interesting. I feel like not necessarily my family, but I see a lot of my friends were raised not to be sad. Yeah. That sadness, but like sadness is a part of it. That is a part of like what's behind a lot of anger is deep hurt and sadness. Yeah. Well, I think it's not only a, a, a part of it, it, it's an inevitability. It's an inevitability. Your your life is going to a bad place, as are all of ours. And I think on a certain level, we've been taught to see that as either some kind of failure on, on our part or something to just not think about and, and, and kind of put the old people under the rug so we don't have to think about where it's all going. But sadness is a very potent thing. Sadness is part of what gives a, a person their character. I, I, I do think that um, uh, you have the chance to kind of deepen over time. Your your roots go deeper. And, and the thing that nourishes those roots is those experiences that are unavoidable in life that we lump all into the negative categories. And they are negative. They're not pleasant. But they also teach you a, a humility and give you a depth you know, it, it, that, just that thing of like people don't change. I, I remember being in a class that Kevin Dorf taught one time and he, he made the point of like beats in a herald that to the old timers, he, he was like to Dell and Dell's generation, part of what was funny was the fact that people don't change unless a profound shock from outside forces them out of their orbit. We just, we want to change. We try to change, but we keep on returning to our orbit. And that was funny to them. And that's built into the herald as a, as a, as a you know, beat or whatever. So I think it's an interesting idea. I haven't lived long enough to draw this conclusion, but my hunch is, I think for the most part, people don't really fundamentally change. You grow and you go through experiences, but I think you stay fundamentally consistent. But I think that we have the opportunity to deepen as we return on our orbits over and over again our characters can deepen, our roots can take hold. But that means owning, taking ownership of the sadder elements and the and the more horrifying elements, confronting that in ourselves and in each other and letting that kind of nurture who we are and making us deeper, stronger people. Maybe more, maybe people with a deeper sense of humor too. Yeah. And at times it, I don't mean it to come off nihilistic, speaking of nihilism again. But sometimes, like, I I have non-visible disabilities, and I was very sick as a kid. I've had a lot of health struggles, struggles as an adult. And the thing that I've been aware of, because I've almost died a number of times in my life, is that I will die. So will everyone I love what am I doing with the time here? Mm -hmm. And I think we run to the status quo. We run to numbing because we want to make the best of it versus like enjoying the full journey. That sadness is this amazing, profound emotion we get to feel. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting way of putting that. We get to feel it because we're alive. Yeah. And how special it is because we know we're pretty alone in the universe and the universe ultimately we're still mostly alone even if there is other life out there even life as we know similar to as we know it there's still not a whole lot mm-hmm. so we're alone so what a profoundly special experience to be able to experience this deep sadness and to be able to understand that each moment is great because we have it, but we are not guaranteed it. Like, and we can celebrate even in the sadness that it exists. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because like, 
I was reading something like this, the Xanax generation of like, no, 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 sadness, don't want to feel it. It's processing it because I feel like I've made so many better choices. Like growing up, when I was the sick kid, I was very shy. I had hyper intense social anxiety. Uh, but through the positive trauma of being moved around a lot, I had to learn how to like make friends and put myself out there. And through the trauma of being sick, I had to actually face what I wanted to do with my life, right? Because I realized I was hit in the face with, like, I almost died when I was about 17, 16, going on 17. And I was faced with, I get to live, I get to live, but now what? (laughs) And the freedom in that for me was, I get to make choices and I can attempt to use the resources I do have to be happy. Now I can complain about what I don't have and don't get me wrong. I get in my funks and I stew and still don't have a tiny house. Uh, no, where's my tiny house? I need a tiny house. Um, uh, preferably not on wheels, a uh, container, <laughs> uh, shipping container style. Those are cool. Uh, they're so cool. Uh, cantilevered, uh, over some river or something. Uh, But ultimately, I think there's a freedom in the profound sense of loss. Like, I I still struggle with it, uh, and I I go through, I do therapy sometimes, and I do what I need to. I, I experience the profound loss that I do not have a body that functions like other people's, and that other people don't see me that way because I you look at me and you're like, you look healthy. I was like, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. And it hurts to know that I may not live as long that I had osteoporosis when I was 22 and I broke my foot in dance class with my other student, my fellow students just relevaying coming up on my toes and that I don't get to cherish all those experiences. So I try to cherish every moment I do have because I'm very aware that I will die and that I can fight for the moments I have, not even for them to be perfect, just to fight for them because I want to be alive. It's interesting. Until I don't. (laughs) Of course. That's actually not, this is, this will sound more morose than it is, but I've been also been thinking a lot recently about like, wonder what it's going to be like when I get to the point where I'm like, I don't care anymore. I'm, I'm ready. I don't care. I look forward to it. But anyway, it, it, it it's interesting. It, there are just stories all from every culture around the world about the, the, the person like the healer in the community who had to pay some kind of price to become that healer. It's always this thing of you give up some part of yourself, you're physically unwell, you're spiritually unwell, whatever it may be in exchange for gaining some kind of insight that other people uh, uh, don't have. And it's interesting because it, it, it makes me think of what you were saying about like the way we're taught about democracy in school, but we leave out the dark side of it. We're kind of taught about life and leave out, we look at death from the perspective of life. We rarely look at life from the perspective of death. And there's something about the figure of the healer, right? Who is somebody who has had something kind of opened inside of them that makes them look at life from the perspective of death. And you see it differently. There's a different sense of value. And there's a message that you bring back to the community about what you see. That's so important. Not to like overly, you know, whatever. Yeah. But there's something that I think about comedy, or at least I've been curious about comedy in the way that that comedy, one of the things I love most about it is that it's a place for us to put our monsters. It's a place for us to put our fears and our sadness in a frame where we can look at it and and not be crippled by anxiety, but we kind of tiptoe to our own anxieties. We, we I think there's an element of comedy that builds a certain amount of strength to you you can just fight a little harder to look at the things that you don't want to be looking at. And I just like wonder where that line is of 
especially these days, what is the message that we're trying to bring? Not just a social social message, you know, but but that 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 other deeper message of looking at it from this angle of from from the world of our pains and our sadness and our grief. What are we bringing up into this kind of sunlit world of comedy to share with people to try to to uh, um, heal? I don't know. I don't know yeah. the way of putting it. Yeah, I it I think that's what's been interesting for me is like I really do. And I know at times I'm I'm not doing it. I I try to be as good as I can, and I'm not always at my best because I'm trying to push. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know yet, but I, I I feel like we in the greater comedy community sense, let's push to see what happens if we flip it, and really push and like. Sometimes it won't work, but can't we learn something from it? Mm-hmm. And if not, like, I don't know, maybe we make some awesome art. <laughs> maybe it's not funny, but maybe we do something really interesting. Or maybe we do something like, I mean, it. you, you can point to Tig Notaro. I mean, there, there she was in a deep, painful, real place and ended up making something so profound. It's still one of the best. I don't know what you call it. I don't know if I'd call it stand up exactly. No, it's uh, uh, the profundity of human experience while not being dramatic about it. Because it it's one of the things that like I tend to be driven crazy about uh, when it comes to drama is that lightness exists in some of the hardest situations. Mm-hmm. But that's what makes it so dramatic. Mm-hmm. That sometimes we laugh when we should cry and we cry when she, we should laugh. And the human experience isn't as I'm sad now, I'm going to look sad right. until roll credits. It's usually much more confusing than that. Like some of my saddest moments, I have been laugh crying because I'm just overwhelmed by how ridiculous all of this is. And then I'm able to go get sad again, but it's not one emotion throughout, which is why like, like I, I struggle with drama that I feel takes the creators take itself themselves too seriously. I agree. Because I can tell when a creator is like taking themselves, like I'm going to make something super dramatic versus I don't know. I'm going to, it's going to be drama, but like there's going to be lightness because like life is so dynamic. And the only time there really isn't lightness is when it's just like a plunge downward (laughs) with no hope. And there's very few instances where I think that is done well. I, I, I resent those because I feel like to me, it's like a false authority thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like the creator has a point and they have created a story to illustrate the point that they've decided on. Whereas the works of art that really I find very, I find myself thinking about years and years later, to me, it feels like they didn't know the point they were trying to make. It feels like there was a process of discovery while telling the story or making this piece and they have to deal with a certain confusion that comes out of it or, 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 um, or you see that they had a point, but they, that point gets like lost in the telling of the story somehow. It's yeah. more open. It's more organic. It's more lifelike. Yeah. Where, well, where you walk away and you go, there was a point, but it was also just like, hu- like, complex in the human way of right. complexity and like the point may be simple but the story was just like complex yeah and and people behave like people in it they don't uh, behave like um uh well like not people they don't yeah. they behave three-dimensionally not two-dimensionally and it, it's one of the things i love about doing improv is like sometimes we get information in life and we just like I don't know how to process it. I'm going to need a second to think about it. I love seeing improvisers like think on stage because like something happens and they're like processing. (laughs) 
because we process. And I love that. I love seeing it portrayed in other forms of storytelling. I think that's why I'm vibing on storytelling so much Mm -hmm. because to see people process is so profound. Like when I was in acting school, we do the exercise where you just do an everyday task and, and have a private moment and you forget we're all fascinating because we're all fascinating because we're, when we, I, I tell a lot of my students, uh, and I still uh, push this out into the world. I was like, all of us, everyone on this planet is weird, gross, nasty, beautiful, wonderful, interesting. Like we're all, we're all of those things at once if we let ourselves show the world that. But most of the time we're so confined by the status quo, not because we're intentionally adhering to it. Like there are things I decide to do conventionally, but I try to be intentional about conforming to them. A lot of people don't. They're afraid of being weird versus like, no, we're all a little weird. It's, are you okay with it? That to me has been my, I think, single biggest takeaway from all the years I've been improvising is that there, there's a celebration of the weirdness. Oh, yes. There's drawing, drawing everyone's attention to the weirdness and, and learning how to celebrate rather than uh, uh, negate it or neutralize it. That I think loosens people up and creates a little bit of distance from that status quo thing. Because I, I think so much of the status quo, I, I give people credit. As depressed as I feel all the time, I don't think most people are fundamentally rotten people. I, no, I, think, I agree. I think we're just hardwired in a way to to not want to risk disapproval. And so we conform to the status quo because that's the easiest way to maintain approval from those around us. And we just don't think about it most of the time. And because of that, sometimes we wake up and see what we've done while we have been asleep and are like, who did this? This is horrible. And, and th- the biggest takeaway for me f- about improv is it, it helps you to shake that up by inviting people to be more comfortable with the weird parts that they try to um, cover up or, or, or hide from other people. And really good improvisers always carry themselves with that kind of relaxed quality uh, of just like a confidence with who they are. And I think that's why I love sharing that with other people. I love seeing people get comfortable with their own weird. And I think some people are like, well, I could never be weird. And I was like, for me, if everybody could just like be a little more comfortable and it's like, no, no, some, some aspect of you breaks status quo. Otherwise you have no personality. And I don't believe people are born with zero personality. I believe all of us have opinions and thoughts And if we haven't, it's because we've like pushed him so far down. Um, So I think that for me is the like deep celebration of improv is like, yeah, show me your weird, show me your unique. And if that's the only thing you get from taking an improv class, I think that's fine. (laughs) That's great to be a little more okay. Being your interesting self that like hearing about people's deepest fears and some of the fears are super simple like someone was just like I'm afraid of monkeys and you're just like what and they like talk about why they're afraid of monkeys and it's hilarious but also terrifying and hilarious and you understand that little piece of weirdness but it's still so interesting like I think that's why uh, uh, I'm an improviser for life because I was like, I, I don't know if I can give up that, like, seeing people be cool with their weird and the confidence that comes. Even if you, uh, regardless of where you come from, just the, there is a, there is such a beautiful confidence that comes with it. That's addicting. And that you start to, like, really connect with other people because it's like, man, you accept your weird 100%. And other people all of a sudden are drawn to you because of that. So I don't know. 
except you're weird. Keisha Zoller, this has been the loveliest of conversations. Oh, thank you. Thank you for uh, for doing it. Uh, super fun. What would you like to plug? What, uh, uh, what do you want people to know? Um, listen to my podcast if you've enjoyed this. I have a couple. Uh, one is Applying It Liberally. Uh, it's a topical podcast where I talk about how the world is on fire uh, with the wonderful Andrew Kimler. Uh, we also do comedy stuff in it, uh, but there is a lot of real talk because the world is happening. And I also have another podcast, uh, the soul glow project. We're on hiatus right now, but there's over, there's a hundred episodes to listen to where we talk about identity, uh, for underrepresented and marginalized people who exist in comedy and entertainment. And, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about those things. I love them a whole, whole lot. And yeah. Check it out, folks. Thanks, Yay. Keisha. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. A couple of other big thank yous. As always, to our producer and today's engineer, Evan Ford Barden, to our executive producer, Ed Herbsman, and to all of you kind people for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please mention us on social media. Give us a rating on iTunes, etc. That would be great. Thank you very much. Thanks again to today's guests, Keisha Zoller. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.